Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm so lucky to talk with Aaron Puchigian, author of the incredible book, Mr. Either Or. This is episode 88 of Untenured Track. Mr. Either Or is a hybrid, a genre-blending genre hybrid of the verse novel and of classical epic poetry. And so I bring together, um, under the, um, in a hero, Zach Brzezinski, who is in fact, yes, he, though he is disguised as um, an undergrad at NYU, he is in fact a secret agent um, for the CIA. Zach Brzezinski, known as Mr. Either Or. Um, he has a series of adventures in the first novel, and he will in the sequel as well. Um, what um, The thing that took me a while to figure out how to do um, was how to do verse novels effectively. Lots of them have been written, and they generally flop um, because poets get lost in all kinds kinds of detailed descriptions and poeticisms um, without moving the narrative forward. And so I really had to sit down, be systematic, and storyboard the epic um, in order to make it move forward um, swiftly and to take care of plot points. Um, it's a hybrid also of verse forms. I combine um, the um, iambic pentameter of Shakespeare, um, which is rhymed with the meter of Beowulf for the action scenes. And so the action scenes have a driving four stress rhythm with lots of alliteration. Um, and it's almost as if they're choreographed, almost as if they're dance scenes, the action scenes. They remind me of some of the glorious, the beautiful action scenes in the Matrix series, for example. I often thought of those when writing it. Um, and so, as I see it, as I like to see it, I've taken the best from all of the genres and squeezed them into one verse novel. Uh, so it's an amazing book. <laughs> um, I, I promised that I wasn't going to dork out too much about it, but uh, the I, I'm glad that you mentioned the shift in um, the, the sort of prose form, right? Because when it shifts into the action scenes right away, uh, as a reader, I'm I'm like ready to hold my breath. Um, once once you see that shift on the page, and knowing what's going to come, at, at least after the first one, where you recognize like, okay, this is how how we're doing action, and and here we go. Um, and it's almost like kind of like a roller coaster, I guess, right? Like you you're reading, and then like you're turning, I'm turning the page, and like, okay, is this going to be when <laughs> when the form shifts? Um, is this where something else wild is going to happen to Zach? Um, so I, I like that you you mentioned that um, and and sort of the intentionality to that. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm not a poet by trade. Um, so this might sound like an, a, an incredibly dumb question, and so I apologize for that. I'm not familiar at all with this with uh, uh, verse novels. Um, so I, I I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your inspiration. 
um, beyond, uh, of course, Shakespeare and Beowulf in terms of, of form and format. Um, what 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 drew you to to create Mr. Either or? I wanted in my career to experiment in all the genres, right? To write in all the genres, um, to be as much of a universal poet as I could, to write lyric poetry as well as narrative poetry. And then also now I'm working on dramatic poetry, um, a play um, that's almost done. Um, and so um, I'm very fond, for example, um, I, I'm a classics professor, so I can read the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek and I've translated epics, the epic of Jason and the Argonauts, for example, um, by Apollonius of Rhodes. Um, and so I had a lot of experience with narrative poetry and I'm excited about it um, in particular. Uh, I was inspired by John Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, however, starting in the 80s, um, there were a series of um, verse novels um, that started coming out, um, and some of them better than others. The best representative is Vikram Sait's early novel, The Golden Gate, which was a bestseller and is written in Pushkin sonnets. Um, that's probably the best, um, one of the best exempla um, of, uh, of the genre. Um, other verse novels um, have not had the popular success of Sate's novel. Um, and sometimes they deserve, they deserve more attention than they get. Other times they deserve to be ignored, certainly. Um, they can be better or worse. Often, for the reason I stated, um, that, that poets, um, they often have a different set of instincts than, than writers of narrative. Right. And so I had to train myself to think like a novelist and not just a novelist, like a thriller writer. Right. Where there are going to be a million thrills a minute. And it's, it is, as you said, like a roller coaster. Um, and so normally um, we have narrative poems. Uh, we've had narrative poems throughout um, the Western tradition, um, certainly um, that have been popular. Some of my favorites are like short stories by John Keats, The Eve of St. Agnes, for example, I like very much. Um, but since epics um, are hard to translate into the 21st century, I see it, the, ep the verse novel as becoming popular instead, right? Um, epics tend to be nationalistic and tend to embody all the virtues of a culture. Um, and so the whole genre of the epic makes a lot of contemporary authors uncomfortable, um, the history of it. And so that's why we get the shift rather when we get extended narrative that is poetry, um, the shift to the verse novel. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting that you mentioned that because Mr. Either or is in some ways kind of a challenge of nationalism, right? I mean, Zach is, is very much struggling with his uh, identity as part of this larger uh, system. Yes, he is. And so when I introduce him first, he uses a number of, um, he's, well, he speaks in a number of um, right-wing formulas when he first meets Aliling Levine, his love interest, who is, um, yeah, very left-wing. Um, and so there is, I wanted to embody as much as possible, right? Not by taking a side one way or the other, but through this dialectic, this tension between the two characters. And sometimes it's to be taken seriously and sometimes it's not to be taken very seriously. Um, but in this dialectic, I wanted to embody 
um, as much of America um, as I could. Um, and certainly another hallmark um, of um, America is, well, guns and violence, right? However you feel about them. Um, they, my European friends certainly associate America with guns and violence. Um, and there are a lot of guns and violence in Mr. Either or, um, certainly as well. And that's another way in which our values come across, um, whether one is comfortable with them or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I thought the use of violence in this was, uh, I, I liked how intentional it was. I mean, it wasn't, it, it never felt to me gratuitous at, at any, at any point, you know, and, and at least thinking from like, as I'm reading this and I'm seeing everything, you know, playing out in my mind, it, it, every shot, I think literally um, served a purpose in the story. And so I, I thought that was a really, I mean, violence as like an art form is is something that's really interesting to me in my in my other life. Um, so I, I very much enjoyed that. I was also wondering if, uh, what was your thought process in terms of, um, so throughout Mr. Either or, uh, we see Zach and Leeling deal with basically two major challenges, and one of them has to deal with this sort of ancient um, mystical powers at, at odds, and then the other is uh, much more science fiction, futuristic. I don't want to spoil too much for folks who haven't. Oh, no, it's okay, spoil it, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I was wondering about your thought process in, in terms of structuring the story that way and, and having Zach and Leeling deal with this this mystical ancient battle, and then uh, almost on the very next page, um, flash into something that is um, very much the opposite of that. Yes. And so I wanted to combine in my, um, we'll call it a verse novel, but it's also in a way a kind of American epic, um, all kinds of, um, well, at least Western tendencies or even American tendencies towards um, sci-fi um, of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and so we get, um, though it eventually is turned on its head, um, in the first, a backwards-looking um, fantastical sequence where one is worried that the dragon's claw, a jade box that has been handed down through the centuries and ended up in New York City, um, one is worried that it will be opened and destroy the universe. Um, and so there's a lot of in the beginning, um, what Edward Said calls Orientalism, that is the West talking about the East in stereotypical ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd like to think that by the end of that section, right, all of that is deflated. And in contrast to that then, um, and this old Chinese colonial power, we get in the second half of Mr. Either or the original, um, a futuristic for, um, yeah, future looking, um, future oriented yeah. um, narrative in which there are in fact lizard-like aliens who are disguised as humans, um, which has shown up as kind of a stock trope and I, of which I was well aware, right? And I'm not the first to come up with that. Um, but certainly, the aliens, as it is revealed, in fact, are just like um, colonial powers, stock colonial powers. Um, and they are doing to us what we um, and various European nations have done to other nations in the past. 
um, and one learns more and more uh, about them. So eventually, one almost ends up having a kind of sympathy for the aliens, or one realizes that um, they are representatives rather of um, yeah colonial potential um, in the world. Um, and so I wanted to have two narratives, one backward looking um, that stretches into the past and that also serves to bring Li Ling in um, as an art historian um, in that she, um, yes, has the antidote to the dragon's claw there in the Metropolitan Museum. I needed to get her in and then with the futuristic narrative um, in which the aliens invade through a kind of space bridge. <laughs> um, Yes, um, which is on top of the New York New Times Tower. They hope to bring in more aliens. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I really like the juxtaposition of, of colonialism, right? And, and Zach uh, being somebody who would very much adopt that, as you said, uh, sort of Orientalist um, philosophy about, uh, about Asia, uh, and then having to kind of reckon with that and overcome his own biases in order to... Um, save the universe. Save the universe. Uh, <laughs> is, is a remarkable uh, opportunity for personal growth. <laughs> uh, I, oh, go ahead. He, he keeps growing in the sequel. Um, and so when we meet him um, in, there are two episodes, as there are two episodes in the original, there are two episodes in Mr. Either or colon, All the Rage, which is the sequel. Um, and he and he's moved uptown out of his dorm in NYU, and he's living in a fancy apartment um, in Midtown with Lee Ling Levine. And we find out at the very beginning of the first um, the first episode in the sequel that she is pregnant, um, and that changes everything for him. And there are all these tensions then over him leaving his career or staying in his career as he goes about combating. Um, a proponent of absolute chaos, Stavros Kennard, who is the villain in the next novel. He also meets um, another named um, female character who has um, frustrating experiences with motherhood herself, right? She's a frustrated, a kid frustrated attempts at motherhood. Aquila Blair, who is his greatest enemy so far, his greatest um, opponent so far. And then in the fourth and final episode, um, he actually has retired um, just for a year. Um, he's out, out, out of the CIA for a year, and he's actually a stay-at-home daddy for a daughter named Savannah. Mm -hmm. um, and he gets pulled back in through a series of events. Um, and so um, I don't know. Um, at the same, one of the major themes is um, the um, ferberization of the baby. Are you familiar with ferberizing babies? That is training them so that they'll go to sleep on their own without their parent there and it happens and so all these things come together at a climactic moment we end the great adventure against malachi Makan, and the baby just finally goes to sleep on its own um and then he what's revealed at the end of the um fourth episode is that these books were on the two books were all about the personal growth of Zach Brzezinski, who though um, now is in his middle 20s when they're done, is um, a little slow in terms of his maturation. Um, but he catches up by the end and becomes a responsible father. And so, yes, I'm glad that you noted the personal growth of um, Zach Brzezinski in the first books as well. 
well, it's like you said a minute ago, right? That that some of his uh, conflict is, or, or some of his relationship with Li Ling is meant to is very serious, but in other points, it's uh, not to be taken so seriously. And my first reaction was like, well, of of course. I mean, he's even though he's undercover as an undergrad, he's still an undergrad. Yes, <laughs> very much the undergraduate mindset right of of kind of picking and choosing what is serious and what what's not regardless of whatever uh the long-term life consequences might be um so i'm very uh very excited to see uh how zach deals with fatherhood and uh, i have two small children myself and so i never heard the term ferberization before but i can i can relate to that that challenge sleep training are you familiar have you done any sleep oh, training yeah my yep we yeah, <laughs> I did. I did some research. That's that is for another another podcast. We don't need to go into my. Fortunately for me, Ferber, Doctor Ferber, rhymes with Gerber. Yeah, um, and that was very useful. <laughs> <laughs> I guess as a poet, you have to take take wins where you can get them, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> windfall. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I'm I'm curious. One of the questions that I've I've asked folks a lot on this podcast over the years, um, and especially recently as I've been uh, going outside of my own um, comfort zone. So I'm always curious just to hear about how you got into your line of work. So what what made you decide to become a poet? I, I know this is kind of a, a huge question to just drop out of the sky, but what what brought you to poetry? Oh, God. I actually, when I was an undergraduate, I was a music composition major my freshman year. Um, and I wanted to compose symphonies and um, tonal music and write operas. And one day I was looking at, um, it was um, a social, it was a kind of um, cultural studies class um, on world literature. And what I found, I was looking at, it was the Greco-Roman section. And there, was the open, there were the opening lines of Virgil's Aeneid in Latin. Um, um, and it goes on like that forever and it sounds glorious. I didn't know Latin at the time, um, but I had a kind of religious experience. The sky became brighter. Uh, I was sitting out front of this beautiful ivy-covered weld hall on the campus of my university. Um, and I was just like, oh, that's it. I'm 18. I was 18. I was like, oh, I'm just going to write poetry for the rest of my life. I'm going to learn ancient Greek and Latin and I'm going to write poetry for the rest of my life. Um, and yeah, speaking of, yeah, the world seeming simple when you're an undergraduate, um, <laughs> certainly, yeah. Um, and, but that's pretty much what I've done, you know, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, I've been <laughs> trying to make my living as a poet. Um, fortunately, um, I have been able, I did get a PhD, and so I've been able to teach a little bit on the side. I try to keep that to a minimum. And then also I've translated a fair amount of literature. And so I make a bit of money through that. But people always ask when you say you're a full-time poet, how do you make it work? How do you make a living? Um, and so I sort of preemptively answered um, what some of your listeners might be wondering. Um, but mostly I'm just poor and write a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, everybody has their survival gigs, right? <laughs> so... Um, so the last question that I, I wanted to ask you about, um, and this is as much for my own edification as I think folks listening to this, because again, I, I had never encountered anything like Mr. Either or, um, and so I'm, I was really curious about what your, your process was writing this. Um, and if your process in writing this differed at all from how, how other works you've written have gone. 
Yes, it, I, it took me years to figure out how to write verse narrative to my satisfaction. Um, and this is the technique I use. Normally with lyric poems, you sit down and you let them slowly accrete. Um, they sort of crystallize around an idea. And they don't necessarily have any forward movement. They don't have plot points. You don't have to worry about character or dialogue or scene um, in lyric poems. You have other considerations. Um, but I had to train myself with these sort of fundamentals of a narrative um, and, then, and, then, and then figure out how to bring them over into poetry. I didn't want my verse narrative to be um, all in the same form, but to be able to fluctuate. And so it took me a while to come up with a variation between the expository iambic pentameter that rhymes and then that pounding rhythm for the action scenes. Um, so that it's cinematic, almost. You can hear the music in the background shifting. But also, I storyboarded it out. Every major plot point um, had a, I had marked out in a Word document. And then I opened one Word document for each plot point. And I told myself, you can go absolutely crazy poetically on within the confines of this one page as long as you accomplish that one plot point right and that that turned out to be the, a good balance in that i was always moving this the story forward and yet it wasn't merely prose versified it was still poetry and had um the compression um and energy of poetry um and so it took yes um years and years i before i came up with 12 13 pages i was happy with mm -hmm. and then i realized oh i can do this oh uh, it's good yeah that i can write a full-length narrative using these two modes so how did that differ from other work that you've done in the past um, with translation, that is, um, well, that's much easier. You just get to worry about the form and not about the content. It's given to you. And so it's good in that you can, you can just work on your craft, and it's all about how you express something. Um, other works that I've done, for example, lyric poems, I will sit down and have an idea. I'll look at it. I'll start with an image, for example. Um, and I will let the narratives, um, the, the poem, not the narrative, the poem slowly, as I said, accrete around that um, and build it up. And then it becomes its own sort of organic um, little being, these lyric poems. Um, but it's harder to predict when um, one is going to be happy with a lyric poem or when is one is even going to be able to come up with one. Right. And so it's hard being a full time writer and doing lyric poetry because you're grateful for inspiration when it comes. Um, but I can't I'm not going to sit around and wait for inspiration. I have to be writing all the time if it's really my job. Um, and so I try to have all kinds of means of playing with old lines in order to of poetry, like rubbing them together, like um, you rub sticks together to start a fire. Um, yes, um, that's how that's 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 the process I use for lyric poetry, where it's much more systematic um, for a narrative poetry. And I sat down and felt like a novelist, like a regular writer instead of a poet, and that I could just do certain number of lines each day, and I got to move the narrative forward. Um, a regular writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. rather than a poet yes it's weird it's weird being a, yes right now i'm at my writing space in new york city at paragraph it's called mm -hmm. um and there are all kinds of writers and editors here uh but i'm one of the few poets um and i think my process is a little is very different from most of the rest of the writers mm -hmm. um yes and that i have to 
just play around with things in the hope that something magical will happen. Um, and so there's a lot of wasted time, but I, you just have to accept that. Yeah, uh, that, that is something that I've, I've come to appreciate uh, as I start this phase of my career as well. That, that some days uh, thinking about writing counts as writing. <laughs> it does. Yes, I've solved, I'm walking down the street, I've solved huge narr- narrative problems or cru- cruises, cruxes in my work. Um, and I just was like, no, I got to do that. And so in the play, I wanted to be full length, but I was trying to figure out how to, um, yes, add more without diluting it or making it worse. And I realized that my main female character needed a husband and then he comes and visits her in the setting again and again and again they argue and eventually decide they want to get divorced but it adds this whole human dimension to the plot of this play that otherwise was about mostly about social justice Mm -hmm. um and so and i realized that when i was just walking down 14th street in new york city like oh yeah i need to add the human dimension um that'll make the work richer and it'll also what i really need make it longer so that eventually it can be um at least a full hour and 15 minutes in the theater i like that you said one of the quiet parts out loud that (laughs) that you have to make it longer that that is also something that i think writers of all genres struggle with right there's a determinant of an idea but uh, how do you extend that out to, to something that's marketable? Um, yes, uh, that's a good point. Um, and so, yeah, poetry we focus generally on compression. You want to use as few words as possible, right? To it, and um, you want absolute concision. Um, and so, and that, and that's how I trained myself. And so, it's I'm learning now with the play and also with Mister Either Or how to be expansive. Right. Um, and it's fighting, it's sort of curing myself of my instincts. And so I'll, I'll write something and I'm happy with it, but it is, you know, it would take 10 minutes or 15 minutes to perform. And that simply would not be satisfying in the theater. Um, and so, yes, I'm trying to learn slowly how to be expansive. Uh, I always enjoy when the title for an episode comes organically. Uh, so we will be calling this one "Curing Myself of My Instincts." <laughs> yes. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, that what a, a wonderful um, bit of wisdom there. Uh, I, I was also curious. So you mentioned that one of your goals as a poet was to to kind of challenge yourself to write in many as many forms as possible. What's the what's the learning curve like? Um, for for that i i have to imagine that you because to me it, it feels like you you master one um type of poetry and now you're shifting to the next and and are starting right again from from almost square one like am i am i interpreting that correctly i'm the the longest the, the learning curve was um yes was the was the what's the metaphor here steepest was the longest i don't know it took the longest amount of time um for certainly for narrative mm-hmm. um i trained myself and was happy and had some books out that were lyric poems and it was years of experimenting before i figured out how to do narrative and so i was a slow learner with drama um writing a play i actually have a fair amount of experience i wrote some shorts um short plays in my 20s and then also i've translated a lot of ancient greek drama whether it be comedy and tragedy um and i was fortunate enough to have one of those plays the bacchae um was produced by a good new york theater company called city and it was at bam the brooklyn um yeah um um in brooklyn and then at the getty and at the guthrie in minneapolis and so i have lots of experience with the theater 
And that's coming much more naturally to me than um, writing narrative. Um, yes, I have nothing, yeah, nothing but respect for novelists. Um, my goodness. Um, and especially if one's, um, yeah, a realist novelist, right? I'm, for the most part, um, my novels are, for the most part, realistic. But then there'll be um, sci-fi, um, like magic is real, or evil, evil powers are real in Mr. Either or, or aliens are real. But who knows, they may be, you know, I have no idea. Um, there could be lizard people right now weighing the <laughs> judgment of us. the yes. future of, of humanity as we speak. <laughs> as we speak, disguised as humans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is this episode is not going to get picked up by like some dark web conspiracy theory. <laughs> like Aaron Puchigian knows the truth. <laughs> we need to get the <laughs> <laughs> there are lizard people among us. <laughs> Whatever makes us hail. <laughs> but I'm also curious, have you ever thought about trying to, to film anything from Mr. Either or? Because like you mentioned, it's very cinematic. Um, and I'm reading it, I I can I I mean it's jumping off the page. I, I had no trouble imagining what, what everybody looked like and, and how the action played out. And so I mean it it seems like it's screaming for some sort of visual adaptation. And I'm just curious if you've thought about that at all. Yes. When the um, sequel comes out, I will pitch both books together in the hope that first they'll get optioned. That's what you want. Um, and then you get a certain amount of money and um, a company then has the right to, um, owns it basically, and has the right to make a feature film out of it or do whatever it wants, make a TV series out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will be pitching Mr. Either Or and Mr. Either Or All the Rage, for example, to Netflix um, that's buying up, um, yeah, that's um, optioning a lot of yeah. fiction right now. Um, and so certainly, certainly, yes. Um, I'm between agents right now. I had a literary agent and right now I, I don't have one, but I'll get another one for the play. And that person hopefully will pitch also, um, Mr. Either or, um, in the hopes that it'll get optioned and even produced. Um, because I think it lends itself, um, the setting, the New York setting is very vivid and there are um, lots of thrillers being made in New York city and New York's very accommodating um to film crews that come here um and also um yes he's just i find zach brzezinski um an endearing um sort of character the question though um my question is whether the perspective would be shifted right now it's in the second person you you are zach brzezinski and you see through his eyes. Um, and so I wonder if it wouldn't lend itself to being made what's called a first person shooter video game, for example, it gets shifted around where you see through the eyes of the character mm -hmm. and have all kinds of adventures. Um, do you know, choose your own adventure books? Oh yeah. Yeah, when I, Mr. Either Or started out as a choose your own adventure book, and those are all in the second person. Yeah. Um, but I became frustrated with my early frustrating experiences with um, narrative that people would not turn to page 16 or page 18 or make it when they were supposed to make a choice, but they would just read it straight through. And so um, I know it was very frustrating to me. 
And so I eventually just decided I was going to write it through narrative. And I'm glad that I did that anyway. It can be taken a bit more seriously um, as a work of fiction. But um, yes, and so I'd be curious. It also lend itself to being made into a, a video game or a movie that's like a video game. And there have been movies made on Netflix where you see through the character's eyes and where you can, in fact, even choose. Mm-hmm. Do I want to go here or do I want to go there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I would be really interested in that sort of experimentation with Mr. Either or. Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around a, a choose your own adventure style narrative poem. <laughs> <It seems> like <laughs> trying to make sure that that the various like ways that it can branch out still read equally well had to have been <laughs> just so monumental. It was, yes, it was mind expanding and very frustrating and ultimately not successful. <laughs> uh, I'm much happier with the book as it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and people, yeah, I mean, reading, reading through a choose your own adventure novel and, or, or book and, and ignoring the prompts is, I mean, I remember doing that when I, I remember reading those when I was in elementary school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and doing that, and, and so I'm. I guess I'm not surprised that that still is a, a way that people <laughs> approach those books. Um, so that's that's really cool, and I'm, and like I really like the idea of of taking something that itself seems kind of experimental, and then being like, let's take it to the next level and find other ways to experiment with it, and and the form and and the story while still keeping Zach and Leeling um, who they are. I mean that that's such an awesome endeavor. So I, I really wish you luck with that, Aaron. That sounds so amazing thank you very much um so i have taken up a lot of your time so we'll we'll wrap it up there um, okay thank you so much for coming on to talk about mr either or my pleasure yes thank you um for more on tenure tracks please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com untenured to help support us